You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. BitPaymer Ransomware is exploiting an Apple Zero Day. Ator isn't your ordinary malign fairy. It's also an espionage platform that's been carefully deployed against Russian and Eastern European targets. Bin7 upgrades its toolkit. Apple does what the Chinese government asks it to do, blocking a mapping and a news app from users in China. And a look inside the black box as we visit NSA's Cybersecurity Directorate. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, October 11, 2019. Researchers at security firm Morphosec have found BitPaymer ransomware exploiting an Apple Zero Day, an unquoted path vulnerability in an Apple software update component that comes bundled with iTunes for Windows. Thus, the ransomware evades security tools by effectively presenting itself as a legitimate software update. Earlier reports said the vulnerability was associated with Apple's Bonjour updater, but Morphosec has concluded that's not the case. It's an unrelated updater. Note that only Windows users are affected. Mac users, once they update to macOS Catalina this week, will be untroubled. Apple is sunsetting iTunes for Mac with this update. ESET reports the discovery of Ator, a modular espionage platform that has been deployed mostly against select individuals in Russia, many of whom have shown an interest in using privacy-focused services. The malware has also been used against a smaller number of diplomatic and government targets in Eastern Europe, notably in Ukraine, Slovakia, Lithuania, and Turkey. ATOR has been in use since 2013 at least, and ESET describes it as professionally written. Its plug-in architecture enables its controllers to customize ATOR's functionality to specific targets, In general, the malware uses an unusual device fingerprinting technique, automated data collection, and Tor-enabled exfiltration. ESET does not know what ATOR's infection vectors have been, and the researchers think it's probable that the malware has still undiscovered plugins. ATOR itself is named after a malign fairy in the book A Court of Thorns and Roses. The book has lots of fans, and lots of fan fiction, too. FireEye researchers have caught Fin7, known for the Carbonac financial crimes, using new tools. Fin7, that is, would be the one using the new tools, not FireEye. Fin7's new kit has two items, which FireEye calls BoostWrite and RDF Sniffer. BoostWrite is an in-memory-only dropper that's carrying both Carbonac and a second payload. 
which is RDF Sniffer. RDF Sniffer has a range of malicious functionality. Among other things, it's able to intercept SSL connections, delete data, and run commands on remote systems. The payload affects NCR Aloha Command Center client sessions. The Aloha Command Center is widely used in the hospitality industry to manage hardware and software at remote locations. At the request of Chinese authorities, Apple has removed both a U.S. news app and a mapping app from its Chinese service. The Telegraph notes that the optics aren't good for Cupertino, which some see as having joined the National Basketball Association in a kind of shadow extension of China's social credit program into the West. Verge says the app is Quartz's, blocked for content not legal in China. The Quartz news service is both widely read and not typically seen as extreme, and so its illegality would appear to be publication of stories not to the liking of Beijing. The mapping app hkmap.live was allegedly used to target police and commit crimes where police weren't present. Apple had this latter information from the Hong Kong Cybersecurity and Technology Crime Bureau. The opposing point of view holds that the protesters in Hong Kong were using hkmap.live to avoid the police, and that the crime they were interested in committing was, generally speaking, assembling to protest. That and graffiti, sure, but graffiti wouldn't alone seem serious enough to warrant that kind of pressure on Apple. Anyway, Apple has taken the authorities' line all the way to the bank. Quartz is understandably on the other side of this dispute. The company's CEO, Zach Seward, told The Verge, We abhor this kind of government censorship of the Internet and have great coverage of how to get around such bans around the world. He suggested that people read Quartz coverage of VPNs as means of evading government crackdowns on content. It's perhaps worth noting that officials in three Western nations recently addressed VPNs too, but they had a decidedly different take on them. U.S., Canadian, and British intelligence and security services have over the past week published warnings that unspecified threat actors were actively exploiting vulnerabilities in widely used virtual private networks. One of the U.S. agencies that issued its own warning on the matter was NSA's new Cybersecurity Directorate. Their public warning was noteworthy in that it offered some brief advice on how to use VPNs with more assurance they'd work as advertised. The Directorate's five pieces of advice were as follows and seem easy enough for the ordinary user to do. 1. Immediately upgrade your VPN to the latest version. 2. Reset credentials before reconnecting the upgraded devices to an external network. 3. Review your network accounts to ensure adversaries did not create new accounts. 4. Update VPN user, administrator, and service account credentials. And 5. Revoke and create new VPN server keys and certificates. We were at Fort Meade yesterday for the NSA Cybersecurity Directorate's first media roundtable. The Directorate's leaders, Director Ann Newberger and Technical Director Neil Zyring, said that Monday's announcement concerning VPN vulnerabilities and remediations was the first in what they expect to be a continuing line of such warnings and advice. As nation-states increasingly hit targets that aren't themselves opposing nation-states, they said it's important to open the black box and provide individuals, businesses, not-for-profits, and local governments actionable intelligence and the context necessary to use it. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. 
It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Awais Rashid. He's a professor of cybersecurity at University of Bristol. Welcome back, Awais. Um, we want to talk today about the importance of real-world experimentation, uh, getting out of the lab and uh, with your research and practice. What do you have to share with us about that today? I think the challenge we are going to face is that within the next few years, the number of devices connected to each other and the Internet will outnumber humans by, depending on whose estimate you believe, something like five to one. Uh, and, you know, the, these these uh, systems of connected devices will underpin everything from healthcare to transport to energy and finance. Uh, and, you know, the way we, we communicate and share information with each other will change. So we are really talking about, you know, really large scale hyper connected systems. So as a result, you know, we, we need to we need to ensure that what we develop in the lab actually works in the real world. And as a result, you know, the way to test any kind of security solutions and architectures has to be to deploy them in the wild and understand what are the implications of that. However, that, that is very, very challenging because, of course, you can't deploy uh, prototypical uh, solutions on production environments because, of course, they, they may not necessarily be fit for purpose or scale very well. So we really do need uh, large-scale experimental infrastructures that are close enough to the real world to be able to do that. And that's, that's a big challenge. Yeah, well, there's that old saying of, the, of uh, from warfare that uh, no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. It seems like that could apply here as well. Uh, absolutely, and that's exactly the reason that normally what happens is, and uh, we develop we develop things. They they are developed with with rigor and with all good intentions uh, by by researchers and practitioners. But usually we test them on small scale things in the lab or in an experimental setting. And then when they are deployed in real world infrastructures, they don't always scale. I'm not saying that they never scale. They don't always scale. And that's why we need to think about as to how we might be able to do this. There are a number of academic and industry or 
organizations that run test beds. And I think there might uh, there, there is a good argument for us to try and link some of these test bed infrastructures together so that we do have a economies of scale, but also that really large scale environment that would represent uh, the realistic setting in which security takes place in, in the real world. I'm thinking of uh, the rigorous testing that, that takes place when it comes to pharmaceuticals. Um, is that not a good example? Is, is it simply too expensive to do something at that scale? I think it's 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 not a case of expense. It's how you may may deploy and test something. And the pharmaceutical industry is an interesting example because there the the trials only move on to uh, uh, large scale clinical trials once they have gone through smaller scale testing, and then increasing level of confidence is built up. And I think we do need to be able to do something very very similar. But the question is, how do we test in the wild? For example, would you be willing to deploy an experimental uh, security solution on, say, a power grid or a, or a nuclear power plant or a transportation system? And I think you would have to have a lot of confidence and then a lot of fail-safes built into it. And I think we need to develop those kind of protocols. Other disciplines have developed those protocols. And I think we are a little bit further from that at this point in time. Awais Rashid, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Kumar Sarup, co-founder and CEO of Logic Hub, a security automation company. Our conversation centers on his notion that security organizations need to do a better job sharing information about breaches and security lapses, and that in the long run, we'll all be safer for it. Many a times when you hear about breaches, right, many times when you look at that, it takes a long while to to even piece together, you know, what actually happened at a 100,000 foot level. And if you actually want to get deeper into it and you want to figure out really what happened, have data about it, and kind of you want to get to a place where you can figure out as a defensive team, as a blue team, what could you have done, what could have the team done, to prevent or detect and and respond to these attacks faster, that kind of data is simply unavailable to many people, especially, you know, for practitioners uh, to learn from, you know, that data is virtually impossible to get your hands on. And, And that's why I think, you know, we as an industry could probably do a much better job. You know, breaches are gonna happen, right? But but the key part of it is how well are we learning from those? You know, I do look at aviation industry as a very good example of that, right? And and there is a lot of talk about, you know, quote unquote, black box thinking and trying to get to black box. I think uh, in security and in cyber ops and SecOps, you know, people are still quite hesitant to share data uh, more broadly uh, so that people can learn from it. 
That's a really interesting uh, analogy there. I mean, do you do you suppose that we need a a cyber equivalent of the FAA? Absolutely. And and I used to run um, a DevOps team, uh, running a hundred person engineering team, DevOps team. You have to keep the site up and running. And and the reality is, um, the sites go down. Sites have issues. Uh, one of the biggest things that made a difference is every time it went down, we looked at the data very very closely and we tried to figure out why did it uh, go down. There is a culture of like blameless postmortems or retrospectives, if you will, to try to learn from that and establish the root cause. There are things like a root cause analysis, the five whys asking the why, why, why question to get to the root cause, because unless and until you can find the root cause, you can't actually apply a fix that you know will, will fix the problem for good, right? So, so that culture of openly discussing the why some kind of a failure happened without assigning blame uh, was a big, big, big uh, step towards improving the site reliability and resiliency. And I think something similar could very well happen on the security operational side of things, but it's a mentality, it's a mindset that has to be there. There has to be a learning mindset. And, and I do understand a lot of hesitation in admitting uh, to the failures and kind of being open and candid about it. It's easy for me to say it. It's, it's, I do acknowledge that it's a really hard thing to do and put in practice. But I think if we want to get really good at making our security much, much, much better, I think being able to share such data and such learnings will go a long, long way towards that. So you're making the case that there's a strong public interest in in having this information distributed uh, broadly and quickly. Absolutely. And and also also for the longer term, uh, definitely quickly. I would say much more so in terms of broadly, right? Like if, if this kind of information is only present and available to, you know, three-letter agencies and law enforcement only, there are many private sector companies that could actually benefit and build much better defensive technologies. And it can come into all sorts of places. Academia could probably benefit from this quite a lot as well. So I can imagine that a lot of like expanding how different people can benefit from this data. Again, the goal is not to assign a blame, right? It's not a news story if you're preventing a breach for like 10 years in a row, but the one day that you slip up, right, it's a major headline. So mm. uh, it's very asymmetrical. It's a hard problem. But, but in spite of that, there is a very, very valuable learning opportunity that we are not uh, capitalizing on right now. And so, in your mind, how would something like this play out from a practical point of view? How would we execute a plan like this? If you had looked 10 years back, right, there was virtually very little sharing of Intel data, right? And if you look at threat Intel as a space, especially in financial sector, there are organizations that focus around sharing of data. And and I was just at a conference yesterday, and one of the big things about you know, sharing of data between government agencies, right? So I could imagine that there is a place where there is an organization, you have to be members of that organization. So there is a little bit of trust built in and you have known quantities around the table. But again, the goal there is to foster sharing of this data and and sharing the learnings. And it becomes something 
that we learn from and the knowledge and the data is available to a broader audience, I would not go as far as saying, you know, hey, let's put everything on, uh, on the web, right? And uh, I can understand why some people might be hesitant to do that, but, but the sweet spot might be somewhere in between the two. But certainly where we are today seems far too restrictive, far too narrow. And when people push back against this idea, where are they usually coming from? I think I have been in those shoes, right? I have been in those shoes. If your site has gone down, right? If something didn't work as you expected it to do, it's hard to admit that, right? And, and the spotlight that it brings along with it is, is painful. I, 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 totally, I find it completely natural to resist that. Another, another thing that I quite often hear is that, hey, adversaries will learn from it. You know what? Adversaries are already sharing techniques and data among themselves on the dark web, on other places, forums, and all of that, right? So if the adversaries are sharing, I think the net net of it is by not sharing, we are probably saving a little, but we're losing a lot. So in my personal opinion, the net net of getting over the hurdle that yes, it puts a spotlight on you, and yes, that the spotlight is very painful to be under. And yet, and this is where I think, you know, some kind of government regulation can come into play. Like if you went back five, 10 years ago, nobody wants to advertise or even acknowledge or broadcast a breach. But over the years, you know, there have been laws and regulations in place and there are customers uh, that are asking their vendors and their suppliers to notify them in case of a breach within a certain amount of time, right? So those kind of things are becoming more and more normal. And, and so I think that is the right thing to do. Is it the convenient thing to do? Is it an easy thing to do? Probably not. But is it a right thing to do? Is it going to be for the greater good in the long run? Absolutely. That's Kumar Sarup from Logic Hub. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Vaughn, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. 
Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.